0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 4, and it's on page 47 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to start with verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, the power to do it but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also all about the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped him. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you, Lorinda, for reading. And Father, again we ask for you to speak to us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Should you open your Bibles to Exodus 4 if you haven't already? What do you do when you read a troubling passage of Scripture? Because we have one before us right here today. If you were listening to verse 24, it said, At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. If you're like me, you read this and think, what? (laughs) What? Didn't God just providentially protect and care for Moses and save him from an untimely death as an infant? Didn't he just uh, call him, meet him in the burning bush and call him to this great task? Didn't he just give him instructions for what was going to happen in Egypt and how God would prevail over Pharaoh, and now he's trying to kill him? What do you do with that? What do you make of that? And that's not all about this passage that is troubling. What happens next is just plain bizarre. Or it sounds bizarre to us. Moses' wife, Zipporah, takes a flint knife and cuts off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it. Okay, so we know what that means, right? No! No! Um, And then she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, okay? Um, So the Lord let him alone, verse 26. What do you do with that? Um, This is not a passage that I would choose to preach on if I were just having my pick, but it's part of the story, it's here before us, and so we're going to press into it. We're going to deal with it. And in fact, this is one of the benefits of preaching through whole books of the Bible is that you can't just cherry pick things that are easy to preach on. You have to cover everything. As I've thought about it this week, I believe that this troubling passage is meant to trouble us. It's meant to jar us into understanding something that we can't afford to miss about who God is. It shows us a truth that we must understand, and we'll get to what that is. But do you remember way back in the introductory sermon to Exodus, I said Exodus reveals God's character. And to use the words of C.S. Lewis, it shows us that God is good but not safe. And that's what we see here today. God is good but not safe. So I want to ask three questions about this troubling passage What happened, why did it happen, and what can we learn from it? What happened, why did it happen, and what can we learn from it? Well, what happened? Whatever did happen, it's in the context of God preparing Moses for his mission in Egypt. If you remember, he has just been commissioned at the burning bush. God appeared to Moses, and very reluctantly, Moses agreed to be God's deliverer of the people of Israel. From Egypt, Um, So we read that Moses talks to his father-in-law, Jethro, who gives him the okay to go back to his country. He puts his wife and his kids on a donkey uh, and heads back to Egypt. Now, we have previously only known about one child of Moses, and now we know he has two. Then God speaks to him on the way, reassuring him about what's ahead. And there's two very important things in this section. First he says, uh, and you know what? I left my Bible in my bag. Let me get a pew Bible here. Can't be a preacher without a Bible. Uh, Exodus 4, God says two very important things to Moses on the way back to Egypt. First he says, um, he calls Israel his firstborn son. Um, and that's that's in 23, verse 23. This is the first time in the Bible that God reveals himself as father. And he calls Israel his firstborn son, as in this nation, this people who God has birthed and God um, ha- has, ha- has originated and now has a special relationship with him. That's very important. And then we read on down um, uh, in, in that same section in verse 21 and 22 that God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. That raises its own set of questions which we will get to at another time. But this is meant to reassure Moses to prepare him for what's coming up. To prepare him for his mission in Egypt. Then we read about Moses' reunion with his brother Aaron. Moses tells him all that God has said to him, and the two rejoice, and they go back to to Egypt, and they meet with the elders of Israel. And contrary to what Moses feared, the elders believe them, and they bow down and worship God, because he has remembered them in their suffering. So this chapter ends on a high note. But here in the middle... Moses has this harrowing encounter with God. So, what exactly happened in verse 24 through 26? The first thing we need to say is that there's a lot we don't know. These verses are cryptic and somewhat mysterious. For starters, we don't even know precisely who God was trying to kill. In Hebrew it just says him. It could be uh, Moses' son or it could be Moses. Most interpreters go with Moses because he's the closest referent in the text and because it kind of makes sense in the flow of the story. And that's, what I'm, that's the assumption I'm working with along with the translators of your, our, our NIV and probably all of your Bibles. Second, we don't exactly know how God met Moses and sought to kill him. Was it in the form of an angel, a mysterious stranger? Was it, as many think, um, an illness? Moses fell deathly ill or had a seizure or something that incapacitated him, and he was near death. Um, Third, we don't know how Zipporah knew to do what she did, to circumcise her son, but for some reason she understood that was the reason for God's anger. Also, we don't know what her words meant when she said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. We know it refers to circumcision. So there's a lot that remains mysterious. But here's what we do know. Here's the central truth that is clear. God meets Moses in a way that brings him close to death. Zipporah does something to intervene to circumcise her son, and then the threat is removed. Moses is out of danger. So God, for a moment, becomes Moses' adversary, his attacker. Now, this is actually, there's a close parallel to this story in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Do you remember? Jacob also having just left his father-in-law, heading back to his own people, camps for the night near a river crossing. He's alone, and it says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak and sought to overpower him. And we learn in that, in that narrative later that this was actually God coming to oppose Jacob, to wrestle with him. Jacob leaves that encounter with a limp, but he's humbled, he's changed. God and here, God for a time becomes Moses' attacker. So the question that we have to answer, ask now is why? Why did God do this? For some reason, Moses had not circumcised his son. This was actually a big deal. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. It was the central requirement. Listen to God's words in Genesis 17, verses 10 through 12. God is speaking to Abraham. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. And verse 14, listen to this. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Moses knew these words. And yet, somehow, here he is with his son who has not been circumcised. We don't know how old his sons are, but they're a lot older than eight days. In fact, they're probably young adults at this point. And Moses himself would have been circumcised as as a child of devout Hebrew parents. And yet, after all these years... Moses hasn't circumcised his own son. Why would that be? Maybe he kept putting it off and putting it off. Maybe he thought, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not living with my people and I'm in exile and I have a Midianite wife. One explanation is that Zipporah herself objected to it. Maybe when she saw Moses circumcise Gershom, his first son, She was so disgusted by this Hebrew custom that she said, You're not doing that to my second son, Eliezer. We don't know. Either way, it was Moses' responsibility, and he has failed to do it. He was living in disobedience to God. He was disobeying God. How can Moses be the head of this new nation if his own house isn't in order? How can he usher, how can he mediate a covenant between Israel and God if he has not obeyed the terms of the covenant that already exists? Right? How can he be the great lawgiver if he has failed to keep the law that he already has? This was a big deal. Moses' disobedience. And what would have happened if Moses had continued in that disobedience? Maybe there would be no exodus. No salvation story for God's people. And so God, in his grace, I dare say, uh, forces the issue and confronts Moses. Now what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? There's one central truth that I want you to take home today, and that is this. Sometimes God meets us with Severe mercy. Sometimes His severe mercy is the only way for Him to rescue us from self-destruction because of disobedience. Severe mercy. It's mercy because God does it for our good. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those He loves. He does it to save us from disobedience, but it's severe because it comes in the form of a crisis or a near-death experience or a significant hardship, something that feels that it threatens your very life. Has that ever happened to you? He does that to lead you to repentance. It's severe mercy. A few weeks ago, I met a man who told me this story. He had become addicted to pornography as a young man. Now he was in his 60s, okay, when he was telling me this. Um, and he remained in that pattern of sin for decades. He had a wife, he had a family, he went to church, he was a good guy, and yet secretly he was shackled to this sin. And he wasn't changing, he was disobeying God. Well, one morning a couple of years ago, he opened his email. And there he sees a message from an anonymous person that says, I know the sites you've been going to. I know what you've been doing. I know who you really are. You have 48 hours to send me $2,000 in Bitcoin, or I'm going to expose you to all your friends and family, your coworkers, everyone you know. I have your contacts. Well, his blood ran cold. He was sick with fear. He thought, it's over. I'm done for. I'm exposed. What am I going to do? So in total desperation, he goes to his wife and just confesses everything. She is deeply hurt, but she bears with him. He never sent the money to the hacker, and nothing ever came of that threat. He found a group of guys in his church to talk to, to be accountable to. He got help. He hasn't been to a pornographic site since that day. He's rebuilding his marriage. And, God, and he told us, he told me in the group that I was with, God used that hacker to save me. That was the only thing that got my attention. It was God's severe mercy. Sometimes that's what it takes to get our attention. It doesn't have to, but sometimes that's what God, that's the only thing that will reach us. I want to be really clear about something as I say this. I am not saying that every time you face a trial or you suffer, God is trying to uh, punish you for some sin. That is not what the Bible says. Most of the suffering we experience is not because of our sin. That's what Job's friends uh, thought, and they, and they were wrong. They said, Job, there must be something you've done that you need to repent so that God will restore you. And he's like, there's nothing. I can't think of anything. So whenever you suffer or go, th- go through a hardship, you don't need to comb your life for, like, what have I done wrong that God sent this? But if there is an obvious, flagrant area of disobedience in your life, you can bet that God wants to get your attention and wants to turn you back from that path. Right? A bitter grudge, uh, a pattern of sexual immorality, a destructive addiction, an idol, whatever it is. God wants to save you from that. Sometimes it takes severe mercy. Let me, so let me just say, if you are disobeying God in some big way in your life, repent, turn back. You don't have to wait for God to undo you. But if that's what it takes, that's what God will do. You know, maybe Moses thought, I guess since God has chosen me for this thing, he doesn't really care about my son's circumcision. Maybe he's fine with it. Maybe Moses thought, I'm already God's chosen one, so it's safe. So I'm safe. But God doesn't play favorites. We saw right in this passage, God had just said he would strike down Pharaoh's firstborn son. And the next verse, God is willing to strike down Moses, the representative of God's son, Israel. God does not play favorites. Sometimes we make excuses for blatant disobedience with things like, well, God loves me, so it doesn't matter. Or, Jesus died for me, so I'm covered. Or, I'm obeying God in all of these other areas so that it counterbalances these things over here. That's not how God works. Obedience matters. It matters because of how much is at stake. Like for Moses... God gave him this marvelous calling to know him and to lead his people, God's people, out of Egypt. That's why he confronted Moses with severe mercy. And the same is true for us. God has given us a marvelous calling to know Christ and make Christ known. And he will confront us with severe mercy if he needs to, not because he wants to crush us, because he wants us to live. He wants us to be fruitful. Let me point out one small feature of this text of proof of that. Something you might not have noticed. Look at verse 24 again. It says, The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, or in some translations, sought to kill him. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? If God had wanted to kill Moses, nothing could have stopped him. It's not like he tried and failed to kill Moses. He, he left a gap. He left a space for intervention and for repentance. In between his afflicting Moses and, and Moses' death, he left a space. If he had just come and killed Moses, that'd be judgment, not mercy. But he afflicted Moses, left a gap, into which Zipporah interceded and did something. Apparently Moses was too incapacitated to do anything himself. So Zipporah steps into that space. That's God's mercy. He left a space for grace. And you and I have someone much better than Zipporah to intercede for us. We have Jesus, who put himself between God's wrath and our sin. The hymn that we sung this morning, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, uh, the, the language in our hymnals has been modernized, but here's what it said in the original in the second verse. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. To interpose is to put something between two things. Jesus interposed himself between God's anger at our sin and us. And because Jesus did that, we receive forgiveness and mercy. And because he did that, anytime you repent and turn back to God, there is mercy and acceptance and forgiveness. We have every reason to turn. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. Even if it takes severe mercy for me to turn and see. I want to leave you with a poem by John Donne, called "Holy Sonnet 14." Um, John Donne was a poet and an Anglican priest in the 15th or 16th and 17th century in England. He wrote many poems about the spiritual life. And this one is the anguished cry of a heart that knows God's severe mercy is his only hope. And maybe that's all of us. Here it is. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you and would be loved fain. But I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, never chaste, except you ravish me. Let's pray.